Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver. And I'm Kate Gretzinger, also coming to you from our downtown Denver office this week. It is great to have you in town this week, Kate. Well, we have a very timely episode today about federal firefighters. The White House just announced some major changes to firefighter pay and benefits aimed at addressing lagging recruitment and, honestly, unconscionably low pay levels that uh, had been in place. But before we get to that interview, let's do the news. The five tribes associated with Bears Ears National Monument have signed a historic agreement with the federal government to manage the monument collaboratively, bringing back the original management structure intended for the monument. The Ute, Hopi, Zuni, Navajo, and Ute Mountain Ute tribes will submit a land management plan to the Bureau of Land Management, which will incorporate the recommendations into its own plan for the monument. The tribes and the government will also work together to develop public programming for the monument, as well as explore opportunities to repatriate objects that have been removed from the land. In other news, parts of Yellowstone National Park have already reopened following the catastrophic flooding. Uh, I'm sure you have seen the headlines, uh, in case for some reason you have not. A A heat dome fueled by climate change settled over the park. You had warm rain falling on top of snow, creating the biggest flood in the park's history. This is the kind of event that scientists have been warning about specifically for Yellowstone because of climate change. Now, the reopening so far is limited. Cars with even-numbered plates are allowed in on even-numbered days and vice versa. It is still unclear when the full park will reopen. At least the gateway communities around the southern end of the park will be able to stay afloat this summer. It looks like it's going to be a few weeks still for the northern loop, but even that is a relief considering there had been talk of maybe a year-long closure on that side of the park. That would have been, of course, absolutely devastating for gateway towns on the Montana end. Uh, But for now, it does look like Yellowstone will reopen at least in parts for most of this summer. And speaking of summer, and of course, that means wildfires, let's get into our interview. Summer has begun and we are officially in fire season, but fire season is basically year round these days. And that means firefighters are in higher demand than ever before. Unfortunately, the federal government has been struggling to hire firefighters. U.S. Forest Service Chief Randy Moore recently told Congress that his agency only has around half the people they need to fight fires this summer. The White House just announced some major changes to help address this issue, including a temporary pay increase and new mental health services, as well as a new job title for full-time firefighters. Our guests today are with the group Grassroots Wabland Firefighters. They're going to talk about the hiring issues, as well as what it's like to be a federal firefighter in the time of the perpetual fire season. Lucas Mayfield is vice president of the group. He spent 18 years employed by the Forest Service as a firefighter. 12 of those on interagency hotshot crews, before leaving to take a job in the private sector. Welcome to the podcast, Lucas. Thanks for having me. Michelle Hart is the wife of fallen firefighter Tim Hart. Tim worked as a wildland firefighter or smoke jumper in Wyoming. Last year, he died while fighting a fire in New Mexico. Now, Michelle is fighting for legislation named Tim's Act that would permanently increase pay and establish mental and physical health benefits for federal firefighters. Thank you so much for being here, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me. So, Lucas, you were a wildland firefighter for more than a decade. Walk us through a day, if there is such thing as an average day 
on the job, on the fire lines? On the fire lines, an average day, and this is true for most modules, but uh, my perspective is certainly hotshot-centric, uh, would involve roughly around a, a 4.30, 5 a.m. wake-up, um, followed by the overhead going to get breakfast before the crew so they could attend briefing. The crew would wake up probably a half hour or 45 minutes after the overhead go get breakfast, and then they would have roughly 30 to 45 minutes to get everything that they needed to get done to be ready for the operational shift, uh, prepared and good to go by the time briefing was over. Uh, once the overhead got in the trucks, then you drive to your area of operation and get to work. Uh, hopefully you're at work depending on drive time um, as early as possible. Um, seven in the morning, get people out, lined out on the line, get the crew engaged, uh, forward progress and whatever they were doing from putting in uh, hand line and saw cuts or prepping roads for burn operations. Um, and then you had a variety of overhead looking for what that next step was in the process. So trying to stay three to five days ahead of what you were immediately doing and based off of the objectives you had uh, designated from the incident management team. And then you'd work as, as long as you could, as long as you were putting good work uh, out there and providing forward progress. You know, you work until it's dark and then you you head back and get folks fed and get refurbed uh, from the day so you're ready for the next day. So typically 16 plus hours, I would say shifts over 16 hours are becoming more and more common just due to a lack of resource and the resources and the fire seasons we're experiencing. Uh, people are hard to come by. So we're wildland firefighters are doing more with less given the current fire environment. Um, so standard 16 hour shifts, but not uncommon to go 24 plus hours. Wow. That's hard to imagine as a, um, office worker, <laughs> what drew you to that job given the, the long hours and I'm guessing danger involved as well. Um, I dug trails for a conservation corps in high school, um, and then got a job with the forest service to provide a means to an end, help me pay for college. Uh, and then it's a hard itch to scratch. You get addicted to it. And then uh, I spent four years while I was in college working for the Forest Service in the summers. And then I wanted to be um, a ski bum. And then I saw a hotshot cruise and I wanted to be a hotshot. And uh, fires, I mean, it's it's pretty fantastic, especially when you're, you're young. Um, it, it is quite the adventure and you get to walk places, you know, nobody's walked before potentially or at least walked in the last hundred years. Uh, you get to hang out with some of the, the finest civilian operators, leaders, and humans that the U.S. has to offer. And uh, it's a very gratifying job. And at the end of every day, you, you've accomplished something and hopefully you feel good about it or, uh, you know, you can occasionally get your ass kicked and go back to the drawing board. But it, it's a very fulfilling job. Michelle, does this all sound familiar to you? Is, is it what drew... Tim to firefighting as well? Yes. Um, he also joined uh, the, the fire community in college. Um, it was something his professor had mentioned to him, and he started working summers um, fighting fires out west. And 
you know, he had a, ended up getting a master's degree in forestry um, and could have worked a lot of places, but, but the camaraderie and the, the things that like Luke was saying that you get to see that no one else gets to see, that's what, that's what really drove him to continue a career in fire. Um, and he worked his way up. He started on um, hand crews and engines and then eventually jumped around to a couple of different hotshot crews and then finally became a smoke jumper, which to him was the epitome of his career. And hearing him talk about his seasons when he would come home, uh, the things that he saw, um, the places that the, the beautiful sunsets, the beautiful landscapes, the areas he was protecting, it was both a passion as well as a a pride to be involved in that community and with those people in a very, very tough, mentally tough and physically tough job. Mm. Michelle, what was it like for you being married to a wildland firefighter? It's really hard. It is. And I I think that is probably pretty common among um, spouses or partners um, in fire and and those that they leave behind during the seasons. Uh, Tim when we met, he was becoming a smoke jumper and he was based in Grangeville, Idaho, which was over 11 hours away from Cody. Um, and then with the fire season, he gets so few days off that there was really almost no opportunity for us to see each other. So the first summer that we were together, I think I saw him twice in a six and a half month period. And that was pretty common. You know, he was in Grangeville for three years and then finally was able to be transferred to West Yellowstone, which was closer. But he was gone and his schedule was so unpredictable. He missed family weddings. He missed, I don't, I never spent a birthday, one of my birthdays with him. Um, you know, we, we wanted to start a family and it was really hard to be able to plan for the future with him being gone all the time. And that led to a lot of discussions about when he was going to get out of fire and when we could be able to actually spend time together um, on a regular basis. You know, you miss you miss friend camping trips and barbecues and it feels like you're pausing your life for half the year and just waiting for them to come home so then you can hit the the play button again and start living and it's really hard to live like that on both sides for me and then also for him um and it's it's a battle because he loved his job and he loved me and unfortunately those two things were not very compatible. And we were at the time of his accident, we were talking constantly about finding ways for him to leave fire and to find some other value added work closer to home that, that we would be able to move forward with our lives. Lucas, you, you were a hotshot. Tim was a smoke jumper. Uh, obviously there are a number of other jobs that we lumped together under this term, wildland firefighter. So what does being a federal firefighter for the Forest Service or BLM, what does that specifically mean in terms of how often you're working, how long uh, a a stint is it in terms of these these breaks that Michelle was talking about? How long do you have to put your your life on hold for? Well, I mean, a minimum of six months, depending on your availability, but you you have to make hay while the sun shines and due to your hourly base wage historically being so low, the only way you can make enough money to make ends meet when fire season is over is by stacking up as much overtime and hazard pay as possible. 
So regardless of the module, you're, you're really banking on as much work as humanly possible. That's one of the, the things that attracts people in particular to hotshot crews. Because you're a type one national resource, you go er everywhere and anywhere in the country as soon as you get the phone call and as soon as your crew's assembled. Um, and like, for instance, my last season, we had nine two-week assignments, typically um, fire assignments. If you go off district, it's not an initial attack. They're 14-day assignments, not including travel. And now it's three days off. Historically, it's been two days off. But you do 14 days on, not including travel. You get two days off and you wait for the next call. Uh, because, again, you've got a very compressed time to essentially work a year's worth of hours and five to six months and stack up as much overtime as possible. Um, and, and then it, it turns into something you're relying on. So the evolution of a firefighter from being a young college kid or straight out of high school to mid-20s and married, late-20s, 30s, married with a kid and a mortgage and car payments. You start adding financial and family stressors where you don't want to be gone, but you have to be gone because you've created a life based off of overtime and a life mm -hmm. that you can't afford based off of base pay. Walk us through what is base pay like and, and what kind of overtime and hazard pay do you have to stack in there in order to, to just get by? I mean, at a, at a minimum, I needed 800 hours of overtime per year. Usually what, uh, well, it's just the norm anymore. It doesn't even matter if you're on a hotshot crew or a local district crew, what you work. A thousand hours is pretty easy to get in a six-month period of time. Um, but your, your base pay is the hourly rate uh, according to the general schedule that dictates the, your your GS level that's tied to the position description, which is tied to your pay table. So up until last year, the base pay for an entry-level firefighter was $13.45. Um, in my career, I left as an assistant hotshot superintendent, a GS8 step three. I was making roughly $23.44 an hour after 18 years. So you got to stack up. It was, and I think that my salary was like 48,000 is what it equated to in my paperwork. So I had to double my salary in overtime and hazard pay overtime, time and a half, and then hazard pay 25% above that. So I had to double my guaranteed base wage um, in order to, to be able to afford my life. Basically cramming a year's worth of overtime into six months. Yep. And I mean, that's the job. That's what you're there for. Um, but it, it uh, due to the lack of, you know, the system hasn't grown with the fire environment. And due to that, there's just no time, especially if you look at the duration of a career um, of a wildland firefighter between environmental exposures, whatever it is, it, it like I, I can't really express into words how much that starts to weigh on, you know, not everyone, but a lot of the population and that, um, you know, maybe not trauma, but just the wear and tear and the exhaustion year over year over year, over year, the effects that it starts to have on people mentally, 
um, the effects that it has on marriages, relationships, ability to be a parent, um, the substance abuse uh, that exists. I mean, I'm uh, uh, you know, one of the reasons I got out was was due to you know the seasonal depression, anxiety, and uh, just not great thoughts about what my family would be better off with, uh, whether that was me around or not around. It just it it starts to weigh on folks very heavily. Um, Michelle, how did Tim's pay affect you? Did you end up working more hours to to sort of keep the household afloat? Um, well, I'm very fortunate to work in the private industry, and I had uh, been working there when I had met Tim. Um, so, you know, for us, our 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 finances, at least when we got married, were made a lot more sense, and we were I was able to help keep the household afloat. Um, while he was off and, and he didn't have some of the same um, perverse financial incentives, though he, he wanted to be out as much as possible to be able to fight fires. But I would certainly say that when we were dating and he was trying to make ends meet on his own, um, home prices were rising in Cody and he was off trying to get those thousand uh, hour hours of overtime in the summer to be able to afford to live in the off season. And actually he when I met him, he was living out of his truck um, in Cody because he wasn't able to afford a place to stay. And it didn't make sense to rent, a, you know, at least an apartment for a year when he had to leave and go to Idaho for half of a year and, and work out of there. So he ended up just living out of his truck. And he also lived out of his truck in Grangeville then when he went to work that summer because there wasn't any housing available there. And I remember talking to him and he'd be, you know, sweltering in a hundred degree heat in the back of his truck and getting bit by mosquitoes. And it just, it was miserable for them, for him. And a lot of people, he wasn't alone. He was parked in a field with other smoke jumpers that couldn't find housing. And they were living out of their cars, trucks, tents, campers, if they had one. Um, so homelessness was a real issue. And, and a lot of it had to do with the financial inability to be able to pay for more than one place at a time, like a mortgage on a house somewhere else, and then paying to rent a home or a place at the, at the base that they are assigned to over the summer. And, and that became a really big financial stressor for them. So they just opted to be basically be homeless. And there's a very, very large contingent of wildland firefighters that are still in that position. And there's still no housing assistance when you get sent somewhere, you're on your own, at your base pay, thirteen, twenty-three dollars an hour, whatever. Good luck finding right. somewhere to live. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's it is a really big problem, and there is a transfer of of duty station um, provision, but that is very very low, and that's basically saying that you're moving your, you know, your, yourself and your family to that place, and that's just not a it's not a possibility for a lot of people. A lot of these duty stations are in very remote areas. Um, and it's, it's a transient workforce. So there needs to be, there needs to be a more holistic, realistic approach to housing, um, the forest service and, and DOI employees. Right. Not, not realistic to expect everyone to pick up their whole family for six months out of the year, year, of course, let's get into some of what we saw just this week from, from the, the Biden administration in terms of changes for firefighters. Uh, Lucas, let's start with you. Were you happy to see these changes? How far did they go? 
and and what is still out there that needs to be addressed? So the the changes that were unveiled, it was a historic day yesterday, um, but it's essentially a bridge to what the permanent solutions look like. Um, First with classification, um, and it's not perfect yet, and some people have been left out of it, uh, but just the classification change alone from a, a forestry technician or supervisory forestry technician to the title of wildland firefighter Um, is huge and people need the proper designation for the jobs that we do and to present the complexity of what this job has become. Um, So the the classification is huge and not to mention the the ease that it will provide uh, in the case of fireline fatalities or catastrophic injury. You're no longer, I would, I'm assuming this, but I it should streamline the process of justifying first responder benefits, whether it's through injury or fatality, because that stuff's been a fight just based off of the job title. Um, and then the pay is, it's a huge uh, step in the right direction provided by the budget and infrastructure law uh, to provide a base pay supplement um, at $20,000 or no less than 50% or which is, whichever is less of the two. Uh, it's a fantastic Band-Aid, um, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure permanent solutions are provided in terms of pay, uh, the comprehensive health and well-being programs, and then just the, the infrastructure of how we are able to maintain and provide the American public a fluid and flexible national response uh, to a growing wildfire threat throughout the United States. Lucas, you told me over email that you and your group had a role to, or that you played a role in getting some of those changes through. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Um, What, what part did you play in that? You know, Michelle might be able to speak to it more. What, and I don't, I don't even know what's appropriate to say or not say, but I can say that, you know, grassroots wildland firefighters as a whole has been able to forge um, some pretty fantastic relationships within the, the agencies to talk about what right looks like and what can be done administratively. And then with a variety of legislative staffs um, to be able to influence the language that that people see in the budget and infrastructure law, uh, the House version of Tim's Act that's uh, in the House right now, and then continuing to work on what Tim's Act looks like, uh, moving from the House to the Senate, and how we continue to engage on the permanent picture of what right looks like for the the federal wildland fire response and uh, workforce. Well, Lucas, I'm glad you brought up Tim's Act. I was going to ask you. To sort of compare and contrast um, the changes announced yesterday to what is in Tim's Act, um, and Michelle, please jump in here too if you have anything to add. I'll I'll just say real quick. I mean, budget and infrastructure. It added money to the comprehensive health and well-being programs, um, and it provided a base pay supplement um, that is again, it, it's a, it's a band-aid, it's a bridge, it's transport to next level of care. Uh, Tim's Act and what Tim's Act entails is the permanent solution for the federal workforce. And I can just add on to that. Um, and, and exactly what Luke is saying, 
the Infrastructure Act is all temporary funding. So, and the White House acknowledged that in their uh, press release this week, um, talking about that, that there still has to be a permanent solution. And the agencies have also said that in their press releases as well. So everyone agrees that there still needs to be a permanent fix on pay. So, you know, Tim's Act still includes those provisions, and we would still like to be able to use that as a vehicle to instill permanent change in pay. You know, Tim's Act also addresses a lot of other comprehensive reforms that are have been missing in the wildland firefighting community workforce um, for decades and are decades overdue, to be frank. Um, you know, it, it looks at portal to portal pay, which is something that is very familiar to other state agencies like CAL FIRE. So basically saying that, and it's also similar to like a structural firefighting job where if you are on, then you are being paid for 24 hours a day. And looking at potentially in, incorporating hazard, hazard pay um, and things like that into a base pay rate so that it takes away that incentive to do more dangerous work more often um, and burn yourself out faster. Also, Tim's Act includes mental, specific mental health provisions, as well as coverage for physical health. You know, they, these folks are out for years in smoke and, and rough conditions and around firefighting chemicals, and we need to make sure that they're taken care of if there are diseases that come about uh, years after that, and they need treatment for that. That needs to be covered. Uh, there's some provisions on retirement in Tim's Act about how temporary employees, when they they may work as a temporary employee for eight years and then hire on as a permanent, um, and they don't have access or be able to pay into their retirement for those eight years that they were a temporary employee. So allowing them to be able to retroactively do that. Uh, and then the last two things that are in Tim's Act are, like we talked about on housing, there's a uh, housing allowance that's being proposed in Tim's Act to help combat homelessness, um, as well as some educational benefits, because at the end of the day, when they have time off in the winter, but have no money, there, there's no way for them to be able to better themselves uh, and be able to continue to work towards their future. So a lot of comprehensive reform in Tim's Act that was not a part of the Infrastructure Act. Wow. It almost sounds like it's just bringing the agency into the 21st century to be competitive with other industries. Um, But I, before we move on, I I do want to go back to the physical and mental health aspects of the reform you're proposing. Um, Could you tell us sort of like what benefits fire federal firefighters have right now um, when it comes to, to physical and mental health? Cause it sounds like there's not a ton yeah, and Luke, you can please jump in here because I feel like you have had direct experience. Mine was only through what Tim went through, but you can go ahead. It's just, it's historically been extremely limited. I mean, as a as a permanent employee, which is someone that's guaranteed work by the federal government, so you work a variety of tours, um, depending on your position, you get health benefits. Um, And they're pretty good. The Forest Service uh, pays 72% of it. You're on the hook for 28% of it. If you're in non-pay status, then you essentially just defer payment until they bring you back on the books and then you catch up to those health insurance benefits. If you're a temporary employee, you are allowed under the the current system, and this didn't exist until probably, I want to say 2014 or 15, Uh, Temporary employees were not, uh, they didn't have health benefit options. 
um, due to a change.org and a Tatanka hotshot. Uh, President Obama made it to where temporary employees could now access health benefits, but they could only access them while they were employed by the Forest Service, which is a 1,039-hour appointment, not including overtime. So during that time, uh, you know, the first thing we would do is recommend that folks sign up for health, vision, dental, and then they'd forego, you know, everything for that summer of fighting fire. And then they'd use the 30 days on the back end to take care of any doctor's visits, um, eye appointments, dental appointments, and then they'd cancel the insurance because in the off season, temporary employees are responsible for 100% of those insurance costs. So they play a game of, you know, cramming it in while they're employed at the very end of the season, then canceling it so they're not on the hook for 100% of the health insurance costs. And then from a mental health perspective, uh, they're, they're just, there's an employee assistance program that has never met the need of folks that are experiencing trauma of one kind or another. So there was oftentimes people mismatched with the wrong kind of counselor, um, or you would be referred to someone that was two plus hours away. Um, and I'm not running the details on this specifically, we do have a subcommittee chair working on comprehensive health and well-being. And between folks on the outside um, and folks on the inside administratively and with the money that's been appropriated through budget and infrastructure law, uh, they are working on solutions for the mental health uh, portion of all of this um, in order to pair people with trauma-informed counselors, ensure that they're getting the right amount of visits, talking to the right people, and seeking or at least receiving the assistant that's appropriate compared to uh, what they need assistance with. Um, and, and it is making strides. And there's other people that have left the federal agencies that are doing a great job, uh, Nelda St. Clair and FireMind. Um, and nonprofits that provide access to the right people based off of the need. Um, but it, it's a work in progress. And I would say prior to, I mean, 2016, there was really nothing. And it's becoming more and more of an issue that supervisors are having to deal with. And they don't have the tools in the toolbox all the time to get people the right assistance when needed. And Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, I was just going to add on to the tail end of that, that that's what is included in Tim's Act is to ensure that it is um, trauma-informed clinicians who are culturally relevant and to provide those, you know, in, especially in instances of uh, injury and fatalities, um, to be able to provide support for those, those instances. Um, and in, and also on the physical health side, we didn't really touch on that, but the, the longer term issue is that the workman's comp program right now does not, it's not easy to cover um, cancers or cardiopulmonary issues like after your work has ended, right? So Luke talked a lot about the current health benefits coverage that you get, like we all would get with our jobs, but there is a, there's a big hole in after you're done working and you start to experience these chronic conditions how those are going to be be handled, and they are 
it, we're really fighting for those to be recognized as part of uh, those conditions being being really received as part of their job. So that's that's where the physical health part comes in. Six right, six months out of the year on the fire lines, obviously it is right long term exposure. Yeah, and that's um, the presumptive coverage, like Michelle's speaking of. You know, structure departments have it for a variety of forms of cancer, cardiovascular, uh, pulmonary diseases. It doesn't exist for wildland firefighters, and um, a lot of people die pretty pretty quickly after retiring from you know what I, I'll only assume is uh, environmental hazards. I mean, there's a, I believe it was a smoke study report, but depending on hours of overtime and years served, it's like a thirty percent increase for pul- cardiovascular and pulmonary diseases, and like a sixty five percent increase for a variety of cancers. Uh, due to long-term exposure. Um, the smoke's less toxic than maybe what's experienced in house fires, but the amount of exposure is, you know, probably a thousand times. And with no uh, respiratory equipment, you know, structural firefighters have respiratory equipment. That is not the case with wildland firefighters. So given all of that and the the incredibly low pay that you mentioned, it's not a surprise that the Forest Service chief just, recently told Congress that they're only going to have around half of the firefighters they need this summer. Are you hopeful that at least this temporary increase will help address that? And and how much does the low staffing then become kind of a, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy leading to more burnout and even more staffing challenges? And just to clarify, I think that they're they're still saying that they're on target to be at 90% of capacity of the identified 11,300, but there's certain areas that are at 50 or 60% of staffing, uh, primarily in region five, which is California. We're guesstimating based off of info that we have that they're probably between 65 and 70 percent of being fully staffed just to clarify uh the 50 percent thank you and i appreciate that is this going to help with recruitment or is it do you are going to need these long-term fixes that come with passing the bill uh in order to to ensure that this is a long-term solution as we head into an an era where there is no such thing as fire season there are just fires I would say that this is a historic first step and a down payment on recruiting and retaining federal wildland firefighters, uh, but the permanent solutions and everything that Michelle has described in Tim's Act and, and even more, you know, in terms of infrastructure and work to rest ratios, et cetera, that stuff needs to continue coming over the next two years, three years, four years um, in an orderly fashion to continue to be able to recruit and retain the workforce needed uh, to suppress fires and and also to manage the land. Lucas, I think this is a question for you. It could go to Michelle too. Um, how does having a, a smaller workforce than is needed affect your ability to fight fires? What is the, what, yeah, what, I mean, can't be good. <laughs> no, I mean, reduce capacity then 
you're reducing your ability to respond at a national level and you're reducing your ability to respond at a local level. Um, you know, fires are typically, uh, you have initial attack, which if a, a smoke, smoke report comes in, the people that respond to that are the initial attack resources that are based on districts or at smoke jumper bases or rappel crews. Um, and that's who will respond to the first time someone sees a smoke report and calls it in. And then depending on the severity of the, the fire season that you're in in your area, if there's nothing going on, then you become available national. And then you can travel around the country. You could travel from Montana to Florida. Um, and then you've got hotshot crews. That's all they're really designed to do is travel to large fires and provide large fire support. And the, the system is based off of being fluid, flexible, and being able to provide assistance regardless of where you're geographically located at home. So if we want to maintain that operational um, ability and maintain that operational tempo, uh, then we need fully staffed modules across the board. And I can just add to that, that it also creates when we have understaffed um, modules that are out there, uh, that creates more of a safety issue as well, because it tends to be that the people that you're losing are your experienced employees. They're the ones that have been in fire for a while, but they're feeling the family pressure and they need to be able to be home more and they're not getting paid well enough to stay. And so you're losing that experience. You have less experience on the fire line. And that creates a more dangerous atmosphere, in addition to which you have less people working. Therefore, the people who are left have to do more with less. And then they experience burnout, which also adds to the safety concern, um, which really means a lot to me. Knowing you know, After my husband died doing this job, um, I am extremely sensitive to that fact that retention issues are playing into this potentially becoming a more likely scenario rather than a less, less likely scenario of of other people going through what I have. Yeah, Michelle nailed that. The, the loss of middle management and people having to step into positions without uh, the experience is, is, a, is a real issue. I mean, I left after 18 years, there's been multiple superintendents um, and people across the agency that are, that are leaving with, you know, 15, 10, 15, 20 years to, to go work at a at a place that provides a plantable livable income and provides them uh, work-life balance and the, the time to to be a responsible uh, spouse and father mother whatever that may be michelle i want to close by asking about your journey from what is an unimaginable grief losing your husband on the job to now turning that grief in some way into advocacy in his memory and leading to at least this one initial down payment of a, a victory on his behalf. What has, what has this been like for you? Oh, there's a lot <laughs> that I could say. Um, it has been, an absolute emotional roller coaster. And I am very grateful to be working with such a passionate group of people in the grassroots wildland firefighter organization and beyond, and the agencies and the legislative staff that we've talked to. 
I, I felt, I felt a really strong pull to need to do something. I've been familiar with these issues for, for a while, you know, I, I've been with my, my husband um, for five years um, and I was, I was well aware of the hardships that he's gone through personally of what his friends have gone through. And I, I was angry after he died. I, I needed to put that somewhere and I decided to turn that into advocacy. And I, I went to DC three weeks after he died um, and spent days there and probably met with over 30 legislators. Uh, and it was really, really hard, but I was galvanized by by the passionate people that we did meet with and by, by that, that desire, that fire inside of me saying that I needed to make his death meaningful. And I know that that's what he would have wanted. And it has been a journey. I mean, it's been a longer than it's been over a year and to see, to look back and see what the impact of those conversations um, and meetings and relationship building has, has led to, which is, is this, and will continue to lead to more the the fact that people are waking up and realizing the plight of these men and women who are keeping them safe and protecting their homes and the places that they recreate has been the most rewarding experience of my life and i'm so grateful that there is good that can come out of such tragedy and there is not a moment that that goes by not a day that goes by that i do not thank tim for for giving me this gift of of being able to find more in his death than than just losing myself and losing him and losing our future. And I I do I try to wake up grateful every day to be part of this fight. Michelle Hart, wife of fallen firefighter Tim Hart, Lucas Mayfield, vice president of Grassroots Wildland Firefighters. Thank you both so much for your sacrifices, your work, your advocacy, uh, and especially your time today. We both really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Well, we had a surprising amount of good news this week between Bears Years, Yellowstone reopening, and the new changes to firefighter pay and benefits. So I'm going to flip this section around and bring you a little bad news to close out the episode. Or good news, depending on how you look at it. The Bureau of Reclamation is calling for a reduction of two to four million acre feet of water among the seven Colorado River Basin states next year. For context, that's somewhere between the entire annual allocation of Colorado River water for the states of California and Arizona, which get 4.4 million acre feet and 2.8 million acre feet per year. The Bureau of Reclamation is in talks with the seven Colorado River states to develop a plan for the reductions over the next two months. And if that fails, Bureau of Rec Commissioner Camille Tutin said her agency has the authority to, quote, act unilaterally to protect the system. And she said she isn't afraid to use it. Needless to say, we will be hearing a whole lot more about the Colorado River in the coming weeks and months. I guarantee we will have some episodes coming your way on that. But in the meantime, that is it for our show today. If you have thoughts, questions, comments, please send them to podcast at westernpriorities.org or find me and Kate on Twitter. Until next time, I'm Aaron Weiss. And I'm Kate Gretzinger. From us and everyone else at the Center for Western Priorities, thanks again to Michelle and Lucas, and thank you for listening to The Landscape. The Landscape.